We don't have a ton of free time, but something that's really fun and relaxing are games. Especially Best Fiends. Yeah, you can just dive right in. It's super casual, fun. They're these cute collectible fiends that you use to defeat the slugs. But at the heart of it, it's a match three puzzle game. Best Fiends makes 30 minutes feel like 30 seconds sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are thousands of puzzles to solve. I finally made it to the 700s. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. You've been there for a while now. I'm almost to the 800s now. Oh, nice. This is a great game. It's free to download. You can have it with you all the time. It's very exciting to play. You can team up each character based on their special abilities to gain special points and items. It's really fun. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. As a quick disclaimer... Today's story includes a case of domestic violence and some imagery that might be intense for some listeners. For more info, check out the episode post on mythpodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story about finding friends in wet places, which doesn't sound right. Along the way, we'll see why it's a great idea to put strange things on Dad's face while he's sleeping. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a gigantic bird with a steel pedicure that wants to eat the world. This is Myths and Legends, episode 244. Here, fishy, fishy. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode comes from Georgian folklore, and it was first published in the late 1800s. And bits and pieces from today's story are similar to the Armenian tale, known as the golden-headed fish. Both versions begin in the same way, in a fictional kingdom with a king and a doctor. Don't just stand there, say something, barked the king. He propped himself up against the pillows and folded his arms across his chest. Some time ago, details worn by his attendants, his visitors, even his own son, had begun to dim. Week after week, faces melted into blurred shapes, until all that remained were moving silhouettes in the darkness. Eventually, even that faded, and the king was now blind. Doctors came and went, one after the other, but the prognosis was always the same. Not good. And with no solutions, nothing could be done. Then, one night, a servant had stumbled across a string of interesting reviews for a new doctor in town. It was worth a try, and so they brought him in. Now, the doctor clasped his hands together and stepped to the foot of the king's bed. Out with it, said the king. And for the first time in a long time known as ever, a doctor had something more to say to the king than nothing. Far away, there was a particular sea, and in that sea swam a particular fish, a fish as red as blood. The king snapped a finger, and an attendant began hurriedly taking notes. All the king had to do was drip the fish's blood into his eyes, and he would be able to see again. Or, you know, maybe not. It would either 100% work or 100% not work. It was hard to say. And by the way, this is in the original, with the doctor very much hedging his bets, saying either the fish exists or it doesn't, and the treatment will either work or it won't which both statements are as true as they are unhelpful. The physician paused at the door, and also, this 
count it as an office visit? The copays were due at the time of service, so... Out, yelled the king. And the doctor scurried out the door. Understood, understood. He would uh, just bill the king later on. I said out. The door closed. And after a moment, a slow smile stretched across the king's face. Was this feeling hope? Could there really be light in his future again? Read it back to me, he said to the lead attendant. The, the part about the fish and the eyes. Sure thing, boss. Uh, doctor said... D -d -d ah, here it is. He said, go to the far sea and find a fish. And then you said, what kind of fish? And he said, I'm trying to tell you, will you let me finish? And then you <clears throat> the king cleared his throat. Right, yeah. Uh, to paraphrase, the king was to find a fish as red as blood, kill it, and put the fish blood in his eyes. Then he might be able to see. The king stroked his beard and touched a soft finger to his eyelids. Well then, he boomed, don't just stand there. Tell all the anglers in the land to meet me in the courtyard tomorrow. I have a contest for the people. Young and old had gathered in the courtyard when the king announced a new game, a fishing contest. Whoever brought him a fish as red as blood would be handsomely rewarded with great wealth and recognition. Townspeople peeled off in all directions to stake a claim on a section of the river, but the old fisherman had taken his time, weaving through the streets, heading past the river and entering the woods. He would go where no one else bothered to go, and that was why he found it. There, on the end of his line, was a beautiful fish, the color of crimson. Quickly, he wrapped it, stuffed it in his coat, and made his way back to the castle. The king, however, was taking a nap. But I have, like, the fish, the fisherman insisted. Please, this was important. There was a whole contest going on. The attendant understood, but still, rules were rules. He pointed to the hang tag on the bedroom door that read, Beauty Sleep in Progress. Nobody messed with that. Not even housekeeping, because they wanted to be housekeeping their head. Ha. The fisherman said, oh, okay, uh, could they maybe put the red fish in a bucket of water? On the nightstand? That way the king would smell it when he first woke up, which is what everyone wants to do. And so, the attendant slipped inside the room, left a bucket and a fresh mint next to the king, and returned to the fisherman. If he would kindly wait in the lobby, they would be sure he received his reward after the king's nap. The fisherman said this was, I mean, this was his first time in any palace, so you guys have a lobby? The attendant sneered. Yes, he would lead the man there. Can't have him wandering around and off the fisherman went with the attendant down the hall, down the stairs, through a door, across a walkway, around a corner, and to the lobby. When the attendant finally returned to his post, he let out a sharp gasp. Seriously? The king's door stood wide open, and inside... Oh, it was the prince. Well, he should know better. What do you think you're doing? Did you not see the hang tag? Said the attendant, but the prince had his mind on other things. The bucket. The fish. What exactly did they plan to do with this? The attendant started ushering the young man out of the room, as he explained. It's for your father? Haven't you heard? Clearly, the son had not. And so the attendant muttered something about crying for the future of the kingdom, cleared his throat, and explained to the prince exactly what was going to go down. Find it, kill it, bleed it. See? Honestly, how had the boy not seen crimson fish trending? 
The prince walked back to the bucket, looked at the fish, looked at his sleeping father, and sighed. (sighs) The prince felt his heart grow heavy. He would love for his father to see again, but he just felt bad for the fish. What about the fish? It was then that the wandering fisherman's voice echoed up the stairs and into the room. Uh, Hello? Was the king awake yet? Can I have my money? With a sour look, the attendant rushed away to enforce quiet hours. On the way out, he urged the prince to please just step away and let the king sleep. This wasn't time to get into fish ethics or whatever. They could talk about this later. The prince waved, and the attendant left. And as soon as he was out of sight, the prince grabbed the bucket and sloshed to the door. The hashtag crimson fish wasn't going to die today. Not on his watch. He did what? roared the king. His own son had thrown his prescription down the drain? Uh, Why would he do that? But it was true. The prince had snuck out to the stream in the far meadow behind the castle and released the crimson fish. You wanted to see me, dad? The prince said, weaving through the king's viziers huddled by the door. Nobody wanted to be the bearer of bad news, but at least it wasn't any of their faults. It was all the prince this time. You. How dare you. Today I'm glad I can't see you. You failed me in a way I never imagined. How disappointing. The prince tried to explain his moral dilemma. You know, how could he let them kill such a cute, dead-eyed, scaly, cold-blooded creature? One that they eat, I don't know, thousands of a year. But the king wasn't hearing it. He banished his son from the castle so he would never have to hear the boy's voice ever again. At the decree, the prince tried to rush the bed to fall on his knees and beg for forgiveness. But the guards marched in and dragged him away. And so he went, down the hill, over the bridge, past the trees, all the way to the far meadow, where the stream widened into a river. Hey, wait a minute. What was that? In the water, a series of giant rings radiated from a patch of bubbles. They grew bigger and bigger, and as the prince watched, the strangest thing happened. From the center of the rings came a boy he had never seen before. He rose through the water's surface as though he was standing on a pile of synchronized swimmers, and he walked ashore like it was nothing. They greeted one another, both confused by the other's existence. But when the prince got over the boy who rose from the water, he burst into tears from the day's events, and the young man from the water ran to his side, asking what was wrong. The story came spilling out, until, at last, the prince took a deep breath. So here I am, all alone, and now I've got to figure out what comes next. Oh, but he wasn't alone, the new friend reminded him. The boy from the water had also known difficult times, and he suggested that they become brothers. It was the kindest gesture, and exactly what the prince needed. So off they went down the riverbank, toward a nearby city. By nightfall, they were exhausted, but had arrived on the outskirts of a town. Somehow, the prince's new brother knew of an empty room they could settle into, in an abandoned farmhouse, just outside of town. And the pair fell asleep, just as the stars began to shine above. 
The next morning, hunger woke the brother bright and early. He said he'd go into town to bring them supplies, but he might be a while, but he'd be back. He'd been here before, and if the prince went out, no big deal, but the people were likely to eat him. It was their way, he explained, as if that explained anything. So, you know, just stay here. Be safe. The prince agreed. He did not want to press his luck and get eaten, and spent the day inside, thinking about the past 48 hours of his life. How had it come to this? Everything was such a mess, thanks to him showing kindness to a fish, tale as old as time. Just before nightfall, the boy returned as promised. He grinned and pulled out a handkerchief full of food, things to drink, and other supplies. The next day was the same, and the day after that, and the day after that. For an entire week, the boy left to find food and supplies in town, while the prince hid inside, thought about life, and waited. By the end of the week, he couldn't sit idle any longer. His brother went out day after day, searching for food. While he did nothing, he would pull his weight, he decided. Also, he was extremely bored. This farmhouse did not even have Wi-Fi. And so he left. He opened the door and walked casually out into the town. To his relief, it became apparent right away that no one wanted to eat him. In fact, few people seemed to even notice him at all. They just went about their own business. In a way, it was refreshing. The prince walked for a ways, then turned a corner and stopped short. There, in the middle of the town square, was his brother, sitting with legs crossed next to a handkerchief spread out like a picnic blanket. A large stringed instrument sat in his lap, and he began to play a song for tips. The prince watched. Yeah, not bad. Not the best tune he ever heard, but ooh, okay, wow, now the brother was singing. Ooh, falsetto too. You know, the prince was starting to see why the brother hadn't invited him to see this. But then the realization set in. He wasn't supposed to see this. And how could he act now like he had not? How do you look someone in the face after they kick it up an octave when they don't really have the vocal range to support that? And what if the brother saw him in the crowd? Townspeople shuffled past, and the prince melted into the flow of the crowd, back to the safe house. His way back took him by the tower. It was beautiful. What with its impeccable stonework and all the severed heads decorating the top. But wait, the prince's mouth fell open. Oh my gosh, there were severed heads up there. That was so gross. And yet he couldn't look away. I don't know why. All along the top of the wall sat a complete stages of decay display using human heads. Some were fresh, some were decidedly not fresh and quite stinky too. This was horrifying. He tugged the arm of a passing man and asked what the tower was all about. He learned that, apparently, a beautiful and single lady lived there. Bright too. In more ways than one, the man said with a wink. Kid Cockney said that didn't make sense. Princes from all around had come to ask her hand in marriage, but the deal was this. She would only agree to marriage if the inquiring prince could answer her big question. Simple enough, right? Wrong, because if you couldn't answer the question, you paid with your head. Hence all the heads on the wall, the prince mumbled. Oh, wow, Professor, you ought to go give the question a try with such observational acumen, the man said with a shake of his head. This kid was lucky he liked dropping some exposition on strangers. He ambled back into the crowd. For the next hour, 
the tower, the lady, and the big question were all the prince could think about. He was a prince, and he was knowledgeable. He knew stuff. Maybe he should give it a try. And so, he marched right up to the tower and went inside. Ten minutes later, in a mad dash, the prince burst from the tower doors and stumbled backwards into the dirt. Wow, that was a mistake. He had his head, attached, of course, but only for the next three days. That was, unless he could figure out the answer to the big question. Who were Gulambara and Sulambara? What kind of question was that? He had always known those names to refer to flowers. But people? Out of all the people in the world, he had to find the right two. There was no way to know if the previous princess had asked for grace periods. And it didn't matter. The current prince had asked for three days to sort out the answer. And the lady of the tower, the princess, agreed. Well, of course he was going to go phone a friend. And so he took off toward the safe house. I told you to stay inside. People here are bad news. But you see that now. The young man was upset and worried. And also a little curious if the prince had liked his set in the courtyard, all original songs. But I'm still mad at you. You could have gotten yourself killed. I still can, the prince corrected. And then he thought, oh, that's, that's still bad. The question loomed like a death sentence to be carried out in three days. Because that's exactly what it was. But maybe not. The brother leaned in. He knew this old lady who had connections, if you know what he means. Like, if anyone would know how to find the answer to an off-the-wall question, she was that person. But you had to know how to get to her. Also, you had to bring her the right stuff. Frankincense and a candle. Otherwise, she would eat you whole. What? The prince spat out his meager dinner. Yeah, she'll eat you whole. Like, you'll still be alive as she chews you up. It's, ugh. But she was the prince's only option, his only shot. So he took it. How did the brother know the tough lady with all the answers? The brother laughed. Simple. It was his Nana. We'll see that if your grandma offers you cookies, that are people, you might want to be on your guard. But that will be right after this. One look at Grandma, and you could tell. She definitely ate people. The prince held out his frankincense and candle, hoping that they were enough. For a long while, she said nothing, and only leaned in the doorway with a scowl. But eventually, she ducked inside with a grunt, and the brother followed. The woman motioned to a table, and the prince set his gifts down as the brother detailed the situation. He stressed several times how the boys were now brothers, and as brothers, it'd be great if Nana could help them both to, you know, stay alive. Fine, I'll help you, Grandma said to the prince. Just, you know, get on me. It, uh, um, what? I beg, I beg your pardon? She lay down on the floor and stretched out like Superman. Sit down on my back. Do I have to spell it out for you? Without a word, the prince sat down on Grandma's back and no sooner had he wrapped his arms around her that she took off, soaring high into the air, up and up, before nosediving down into another town. When they landed, the woman instructed the boy to become an apprentice for the local butcher, hang out with him, 
learn from him, and when the day is over, ask him not to leave you at the shop. Insist that he take you with him, the grandmother said. Then you will find the answer you seek. I'll know who Gulambara and Sulambara are? Literally what I just said. Oh, she added, when you're ready to go, whistle, and I'll come back for you. Easy enough. And so the prince jogged across the street and entered the butcher shop, ready to learn all about butchering. Cutting meat, it turned out, was way more complicated than he had any idea. This working for a living thing? Yikes, no thanks, that's why he was a prince. When the day was through and the sun was beginning to set, the prince genuinely did not want to stay any longer in the store. He dropped to his knees and tugged on the cuff of the butcher's coat as the man dragged him toward the door. Please, please take me with you, sir, he called. It's kind of scary in there. There are a lot of dead animals. And also, do you really want me sleeping on the counter? That's got to be against some type of health code or something. The butcher wasn't happy, but his business could not handle another health violation. All right, let's go. But no talking. You talk too much, he said. And so, the pair walked home together as, once again, the stars began to shine overhead. Now, the prince, having lived in the castle most of his life, knew home security was a top priority for a lot of homeowners. You wanted to feel safe while being safe. That was important. And this is not a very smooth segue into a Simply Safe ad. And so the butcher had the next best thing. Nine outer walls, each with their own locked door. It made for a nightmare to heat and cool, and if you ever lost your keys, forget about it. But on most days, this provided a fantastic wireless security system. It kept all the bad stuff out, or, as the prince would soon learn, it kept the bad stuff in. The kitchen, that was where the magic happened. And by magic, the butcher meant, well, he swung open a cupboard and pulled out a gnarled human head. The prince blinked. He was getting really tired of seeing human heads not attached to bodies. The butcher set the head on the counter and pulled an iron bar from a drawer. The prince gulped and then screamed as the butcher began pounding the head over and over again. What are you doing? He shouted above the noise. The butcher said I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> the prince, oh, that's uh, okay, good one. The butcher chuckled. Uh, yeah, but really though, it, he told the kid he would actually murder him if he told him. The prince didn't say that the butcher was going to have to take a number. Ha, butcher joke. But really, the kid was in the habit of trying to answer death riddles and making deals with people eating grandmas. Let's go for the poor decision hat trick. He took a seat. Lay it on me. And so, the butcher shared his heartbreak. The butcher once had a lady, a wife named Gulambara, whom he loved very much. She was his everything. So much so that he kept her inside, behind all nine walls, all nine doors, and all nine locks. Nothing could hurt her in that way. And he said that because he doted on her such, she had everything she needed. Every day, the couple talked about how much they were in love. There was only one for him, only one for her, and they have been lucky enough to find each other, blah, blah, blah. The prince looked at the nine consecutive walls in a row. Yeah, nothing said I love and trust you in a non-controlling way like locking your spouse behind nine doors every day. Then, 
The butcher's voice turned grim. He used to have an apprentice named Sulambara at this. His face turned red and his fists purple. They had deceived the butcher, been together time and time again without him knowing. It had all come out the day the butcher came home early and chanced upon them. You'd think they would have heard him opening all nine locks and doors, the butcher said. The butcher pulled out a wad of keys the size of a cantaloupe. But no, their secret was discovered. The butcher had yelled and punched a wall and then resorted to the one thing he knew well, the one thing that never let him down, being a butcher. They both died quickly, but the bodies he locked in different cabinets. Every day, after work, he came home and took an iron bar to the corpses until there was nothing left save a single head. There are healthy ways to work through your guilt, anger, and pain. And then there was whatever the butcher was doing, which, as the prince just saw before macabre story time, the head was also now gone, the butcher concluded. Then he turned his bloodshot eyes to his new apprentice. Really, what could the prince say? Surely not that this was a huge overshare and a story he very much regretted hearing, although all that was true. And now the prince must die. Wait, he shouted, backing up to the door. Can I have like a few moments to just say my prayers before you kill me? The butcher looked at the clock and shrugged. Sure, why not? Give him some time to sharpen a knife. It wasn't fun for either of them if the knife was dull. It wasn't like the boy could manage all nine doors anyway. Which was true just like it was also true that the prince didn't need the doors at all. He whistled, and instantly his new grandmother appeared, scooped him onto her back, and soared away. He had escaped, but just barely. The morning of the third day, the prince returned to the lady of the tower. He now knew who Gulambara and Sulambara were, and shared all that he had learned. It took the woman by surprise, and for the first time, she came down and stood eye to eye with a visiting prince. It was good to not kill someone for a change. Well then, she said, shall we get married? And so they were. After the ceremony, the party of three set out for the prince's home kingdom. You know, he had done pretty well for himself. Made a cool best friend, married a princess. Maybe the king would come around, or at the very least, a father would realize he missed his son. Their family had grown and the prince was eager to share the good news. Along the way, they passed the stretch of river where the brothers first met. They sat on a bank to rest and soon found themselves reminiscing about all they'd been through already. At last, it was the brothers' turn to shed a tear. Their friendship had been born out of the prince's distress, but he was okay now, no longer alone, not lost in life. It was beautiful to see, and maybe one day, the brother would find a spouse too. It's time to part ways and for me to return home, he said after a moment. The prince nodded knowingly. It was bittersweet, but he understood. For the next half an hour, the trio sat huddled in silence on the edge of the river, watching the sunset and a grand show of purple and orange. It was their last moments together, and they all knew it. In the dimming light, the brother finally stood to go. He turned his face to the newlyweds to wave goodbye, but a look of anger contorted his face. He screamed 
and lunged at the recent bride with a dagger outstretched in one hand. She yelped and twisted. The prince shouted and dove. And when the dust cleared, reality was even worse than the couple feared. We'll hear the conclusion of the story and the reason for the brother's rage. But that, once again, will be right after this. An engagement, a marriage, these are usually times for joy. But for those not starring in the show, celebrations of love can sometimes serve as harsh reminders of someone's loneliness, jealousy, as many know, is a real thing, and it can rear its ugly head and cause people to commit unthinkable acts. All this ran through the prince's head, the split second his brother attacked his wife, except he hadn't seen the viper appear on the shore, didn't know it had slithered up behind his bride, and definitely didn't realize it was about to strike the moment the brother lunged and took the blow himself. He'd managed to kill the creature, but in doing so, had sacrificed himself for our family, for your kindness and my freedom, the brother said with a wince. Prince didn't understand and fell to his knees. He hugged his brother and looked upon his face through blurry eyes. The brother patted a chest pocket with a shaky hand and the prince helped him pull something from within, the handkerchief Prince handed it to the brother, and the young man pressed the handkerchief to his wound, and then handed the reddened cloth back to the prince. It's me, the brother said. He was the crimson fish. The prince had showed him kindness, given him his freedom, and the fish would pay it back twofold. He'd saved the young man's bride, and now he would gift the king his sight as well. The handkerchief when draped across the king's eyes, would restore what was lost. And with that, a wave from the river lapped onto the shore. When it pulled away, the brother was gone. The next day, the couple went home to the castle and to the king. They draped the handkerchief over the king's eyes, and sure enough, he could see again. Father and son reconciled, the king welcomed his daughter-in-law with open arms. But where did the handkerchief come from, the king wondered. And so the newlyweds told him everything, and the story of the crimson fish, the prince's brother, was celebrated throughout the kingdom. Oh, and also they should really probably go arrest a murderer because that guy was still out there and totally into murder. As we said at the top, this story comes from folklore in Georgia, the nation, not the state. It's akin to versions of a similar story from Armenian, Greek, and even Turkish folklore. And each version adds its own twist. I should note that the original version we found has a different ending than the one today, kind of. That version portrays the new bride as being, quote, 
venomous and as the prince's possession, which, yeah. There, you have the brother demanding compensation for his help, and so the prince offers him all of his new wealth, aka the princess's new wealth, which he now has ownership of because he's the man, and the brother says, no, I want half your wife, and proceeds to strap her to a tree and threaten to split her with a sword three different times. Each time, the green venom comes out of her mouth, and after a third attempt, the guys declare all of her venom gone. So, yay! Now they can all live happily ever after. The ending of our story tracks closer to the Armenian. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of lightsaber chopsticks, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, sadly, won't reveal to you once and for all who in your friend group is a Sith Lord by which chopsticks they choose. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Minokawa from Filipino folklore. A giant bird, the Minokawa is massive, like as big as an island big, and it has a very specific appetite. Think of it like a dragon, with steel talons, a steel beak, and mirrors for eyes, Oh yeah, that also likes to snack on the moon and the sun. And if it manages to eat both of those, it'll want to eat the earth too. It's like a very big, very cosmically dark if you give a mouse a cookie situation. So don't give the Minakawa the moon and it won't want a sun to go with it. So here's what you need to do. The Minakawa hangs out on the eastern horizon, just beyond the clouds. It's said that the moon travels in and out of holes in the sky, which is why you can see it at night, but not during the day. And in doing so, the moon generally escapes the hungry Minokawa night after night, usually. Ever hear of a lunar eclipse? It's a fancy term we humans use to explain the horror of the Minokawa eating the moon. Everything goes dark, and the Minokawa starts looking for the sun to eat next. And if it gets that far, well, I mean, we're all very cold and we'll die or we'll get eaten by a giant bird, so neither of those are great outcomes for us. So, to save the world, we have three options to stop the Minokawa. Startle it, pique its curiosity, or put on a concert. Any of those options will catch the creature off guard, and it'll release the moon. Of course, the simplest move is to simply make a lot of noise with your friends. Scream and yell like your life depends on it, because it very much literally does. But if you like to have a good time, maybe go for the concert option. Either way, be loud and be free, and maybe, just maybe, we'll all live to see another day. And a spit-soaked, half-eaten moon. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.